Uh, good morning, Hillside. Welcome. So, uh, so good to see you this morning. You know, uh, I think you should all just turn to your neighbor real quick and say, you look tired. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, it's an old joke. I actually ask you to do that every uh, spring daylight savings time, so thanks for bearing with me. Um, it is really good to be together. Thanks, Sonia. She was feeling like, uh, oh, I took too long. I, I think it's really important. We, last year was a significant uh, year in the life of our community together. And uh, we sang about new wine and all the things that God has been birthing and, and growing. And uh, we celebrate that and give praise. Really looking forward to that housewarming uh, dedication weekend where we kind of rededicate our building this facility that God's given us, this piece of land, which we know is just a piece of land, but somehow our prayer is that God would use it for his glory and for shaping a people that look more like Jesus. Amen? It's really, really good. Uh, by the way, we got, uh, I think, 29 dads and kids up Mount Seymour this weekend having a great time. Uh, heard, I, I got a text yesterday saying everything was going so amazing, and uh, Dads and kids were getting along, and dads and dads were connecting and, and making friends. And so think of them as they kind of wrap up their time this morning and come on back, re-entry into their families, all that kind of stuff. So really, really cool. Um, if you have a Bible, uh, and uh, if you need a Bible, you can go and borrow a loaner or grab one on your phone. Um, we'll have the, the words on the screen as well. But we're turning to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, we're in our Gospel According to Matthew series, and we're at this passage that starts in Matthew 16, verse 13, and I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, if you're able. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Let's, let's pause and pray. Jesus, uh, there's something remarkable when we gather around your word, uh, and especially as we study the life of Jesus. Um, not only are we inspired, uh, we're challenged, and uh, uh, it, we're shown what reality really is. I, I pray, God, this morning you would teach us uh, from this story, more about what you want to do in our lives in this world around us. Teach us, we pray. We're open. We want to hear. 
Speak to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Feel free to have a seat. Um, some of you would be familiar with Dallas Willard. I've quoted Dallas Willard a lot over the years. Dallas Willard is a Christian, uh, he was a Christian philosopher, thinker, teacher, author. Uh, his book, uh, Divine Conspiracy, which is on the Sermon on the Mount, I read that years ago, kind of blew up my world a little bit at the time. Um, he's also a guy who not only was just really smart, uh, he actually, the way he walked with Jesus was very real. Um, and uh, the kind of person who, when they walked into a room, would change the spiritual environment for the better. That was, that was Dallas Willard. Another guy, John Ortberg, uh, who's also an influential pastor and author, um, became kind of like an apprentice. He actually uh, went to Dallas Willard on many, many occasions in Dallas's later years and treated him like a mentor and wanted to be coached by him. And on one occasion, John has this conversation with Dallas about how he could lead the kind of church where anybody who wanted to learn about Jesus could not just learn about Jesus, but could grow up in Christ, who could become mature in, in that, that relationship with God and transformed. And John said he had kind of expected Dallas Willard to say something along the lines of, you know, nuts and bolts of programs and ministries and strategies. But this is what Dallas said. This is how he responded to John. He said, the starting point is to live every day with deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your experience of everyday life with God. He says, that's number one. That's the best gift you can give to your church. Live every day with deep contentment, joy, and confidence in your experience of everyday life with God. It's so good. I, I love that. I've been sitting with that quote for a while, and um, there's just enormous joy as, as you try to live that. But the second thing he said to John was this, when you teach, let people know that Jesus is up to something indescribably wonderful that you are want, going to want to get in on. That, that's really what we want to talk about today. In our text in Matthew, Jesus is up to something indescribably good that we are going to want to get in on. And, and where we are in the, the Gospel of Matthew it's actually Jesus is getting a little bit further on towards the end of his ministry. He's getting to ready to, to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And our text happens just before this. Uh, look at verse 13 again. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Now this is a hugely pivotal moment in the life of the disciples. They don't know that yet. <laughs> and there's something about this passage that would be very striking to a first, hold the map just for a second. Uh, hopefully you can see it, but it would be very striking to a first century reader, but much less so to us. It's where it takes place. The text says he took them to Caesarea Philippi. Might be helpful to see that on this map. Take a look at the screen. There we go. You'll see up uh, at the north that, that blue blocked uh, in, in uh, sort of the upper center is the Sea of Galilee. That's Galilee. Galilee is where Jesus did much of his ministry. 
flowing down from, from Galilee is the Jordan River. It kind of divides, on one side is Israel today, on the other side is Jordan, actually. But you follow the Jordan River down, and it takes you to the Dead Sea. Again, most of Jesus' ministry happens right up in the north around the Sea of Galilee. Um, down in, Jerusalem is down beside the Dead Sea. But Caesarea Philippi, if you look where that is, can you see it up in the top? It's at the very, very top, uh, about 40 kilometers away from the Sea of Galilee region. And he takes them to the town of Caesarea Philippi. And that's what we're going to unpack because something kind of mind-blowing is going to take place. This is, like I said, 40K from Galilee. It's a, a long, long walk. That's what they did then. There was no Uber, nothing like that. There are no Jewish settlements up there. It's not on the way, really, to anywhere for Jesus. And not just that, this is a remarkably pagan place. Uh, Angel and I were privileged to visit there uh, a few years ago, and it sits in the Golan Heights just at the, the base of the foothills of Mount Hermon. And there's a spring there, and in Jesus' day, prior to an earthquake that happened about 150 years ago, uh, water would have come gushing out of that cave from underground. It was one of the main sources of the Jordan River. And in a desert area, you cannot understate the value of water and, and what a gift it could be. It was a place, and that whole region was a place of life and growth. It's uh, lush. It's, it's beautiful. But it's also a place where there are all kinds of, of pagan worship. In, in earlier centuries, it was where the god of Baal was worshipped because they thought he brought water and was a fertility god. He was also the god of the underworld. And so they believed that because this water kind of mysteriously erupted from the ground, from this cave and poured out, they thought that was the place where the spirits of the underworld were able to enter into our world. Think of the kind of I, the, the gates or portals we get portrayed in all kinds of modern films from Marvel to Stranger Things to Percy Jackson, this gate or connecting place from that world to this world, from the underworld. So they called this spring, the, the cave where the water came gushing out, where Baal was thought to come out, they called it the gate of Hades. Now, now keep that phrase in mind, the gate of Hades. It's Caesarea Philippi, the, the place is the gate of Hades. Now, by Jesus' day, Baal was no longer worshipped much anymore, and there, there was another god who was worshipped at Caesarea Philippi, primarily there. He was the god Pan. Anyone remember the Greek god Pan? Yeah, for sure. It, I, I was almost going to show you a really scary image of him portrayed in the film a few years back called Pan's Labyrinth, and it's got this, it's a, it's a half goat, half god creature, you know, goat feet, goat legs, goat horns. And I thought it might frighten some of you, so I thought I'd leave it off the screen. Um, but he was kind of a nasty character. Um, goats, by the way, have never really been considered creatures of high moral character, have they? <laughs> but Pan was thought to be a god of fertility, so they'd actually keep goats in that area. There was the, the worship of Pan that involved sexual practices that were unspeakably offensive to even a nominally devout Israelite. They'd be offensive to almost anyone in our culture today. Pan was also thought to be a god who would inspire confusion, chaos, disorder in people, in his enemies. 
He was uh, useful if you had enemies. The Greeks had a word for this. They called this spirit of disorder and internal chaos, they called it panic. You know the word panic, right? Panic comes from the word pan, the god pan, or pandemonium. All the, the demonic spirits of chaos or disorder came from the god pan. Pandas, a deceptively cuddly species of bear. It's all pan. Just kidding. Just That was a joke, but not pandas. Nothing to do with the god pan. Some of you are worried there for a second. <laughs> so pan is worshipped there at Caesarea Philippi. And this is where Jesus brings his disciples. And you got to know, no rabbi brings their disciples there. This place was... So offensive to Israel that, that scholar, Holy Land scholar Ray Vanderland said that there was actually an ancient rabbinic saying that said, when Messiah comes, the gates of Caesarea Philippi will collapse. It was such a depraved place. And it wasn't just Pan. Caesar, Philippi was named, Caesarea Philippi was named for Caesar. A big temple was built by Philip to Caesar in this place. And, and so there was emperor worship going on there as well. And if you look at this rock, you can see to the day, this day, you can see niches or holes in the rocks where statues and, 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 and places where God, uh, pan images were placed and other gods were placed. There are still inscriptions there. They were worshipped there. One scholar said this could be called the rock of the gods. Hang on to that phrase, the rock of the gods. So the disciples have got to be wondering, what in the world is Jesus doing taking them on a 40-kilometer detour right out of their way to Caesarea Philippi. By the way, nothing else happens there. There, there are no multitudes, no crowds, no teaching, no healings. Just this one long conversation between Jesus and his disciples in this strange place that's a long, long way out of their way. What's going on? Well, it seems that Jesus, who just is this master teacher wanted to make a point that would be unforgettable. He says to them, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say this, some say that, uh, so forth. Then Jesus asked one question that will be asked of everyone one day, a, a thought, a question that's really good to be pondered. Who do you say I am? And they answered, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here Jesus was at the rock of the gods, all these dead gods and wannabe gods. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, and now it starts to get interesting, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now I've got to tell you, whole forests, have been cut down to make the books to talk about what this means. What does Jesus mean by rock here? In, in the Catholic tradition, it's understood to be a reference to Peter as the first in line to the papacy, the, the first of the popes. In, in our tradition, the, the Protestant tradition, it's generally understood to be uh, the faith that Peter has in Jesus. That's the rock. That's the foundation. Now, it can help, be helpful to know that rabbis, which, by the way, just again means teacher, 
Um, rabbis would often teach with many layers to their words. You can kind of come at it from different angles. The rock, of course, is a great image. In the Old Testament, in the psalm, the psalm says, God, you are my rock and my salvation. Jesus himself would be called the living rock by the Apostle Paul. So I think there are layers to this image of rock, and I think there's one more. Remember, Jesus has taken them to Caesarea Philippi where they can look at the rock of the gods. I think part of what Jesus is saying is on this rock right here, which looks so pagan, that's full of so much spiritual confusion and sexual anarchy where, where money and power and pleasure are worshipped today, on this rock I will build my church. It's a, it's a really, really bold statement when you think about it because this is just Jesus. This is one carpenter guy with 12 disciples, this ragtag group. I mean, we're talking about no power, no resources, no money. In this God-forsaken place, he says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Then the next line, some of you know this, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, Hades is literally what it says. The gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. This is just an unbelievable deal going on here. A lot of times, I think people get this image wrong. When, when they think about the gates, they think of it kind of like the church huddled, you know, locked behind the gates, and we're just kind of huddling together and building our own kind of subculture kind of going on here, protecting ourselves while the forces of darkness or secularism or whatever are kind of pounding on our walls. The idea of a church as being kind of this unassailable fortress. In fact, I, I have a friend who pastors a church who he doesn't like how his church looks, the outside of it, because it actually looks like a fortress. It's kind of like we'd put, you know, those uh, capstones along the edge of our walls up here. We could have turned Hillside into a fortress. But this whole idea of us against the world. I don't think that's the image Jesus uses here. The image he's using here is look around. Look at all these people. <laughs> They're enslaved by ignorance, by fear, by confusion, by sin. All these People living their lives with a sense of panic. I have no intention, Jesus says, of, of standing passively by while, while this happens to people I love. I'm going after them. I'm taking down the gates of hell. I have the keys. My dad gave them to me. Now who wants to go with me? Such a powerful moment. So what's Jesus' plan? How's he going to do this? Not with an army. Not by force. Not by legislation. No one in the history of the world ever had a thought like the one Jesus is trying to unpack for this little group right there. From that time on, Matthew 16, again, the same conversation at Caesarea Philippi, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus says, I'm going to break down the gates of hell by descending into hell. 
And he did. I'm going to defeat the power of hatred by enduring more in my love than hatred can dole out. I'll defeat death by dying. I'll defeat death by dying in the worst way on a cross, but I'll rise. It's this unbelievable story. At the rock of the gods, at the gates of hell, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what about you and me? Why does Jesus have us here? Put the story in our terms. Jesus takes his disciples to the city with the reputation of being the most pagan, secular, skeptical, sexually avant-garde, spiritually disorientated, spiritually disconnected city in the country. Where in our day, where in our country do you think that city might be? I don't think it's Yarrow, British Columbia. But it's always the church. (laughs) Everywhere the church is brought to Caesarea Philippi, where the gates of hell are. And this is so important for us as Jesus followers, because Jesus says, we're not actually going to hide from the gates of hell. (laughs) We're going to take the gates of hell on. (laughs) We're not afraid of them. We're confronting the gates of hell. But we're not doing it in arrogance. We're, we're not doing it with a chip on our shoulder. We're, we're actually doing this not, not with we have all the answers, but we do this in humility with great love that gets expressed in a cross. He goes on to say, and we'll unpack this in a few weeks, but he goes on to say, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Deny yourself. That's walking in the way of Jesus into the very gates of hell. This is the vision that we believe God has for us as we follow Jesus in our church. Together, seeking to be equipped and empowered as a community of Jesus followers. And then bringing the healing and hope and compassion of Jesus to the gates of hell. Which we fondly call the Tri-Cities in the greater Vancouver area, and the world beyond. Really, it's, just giving you some new language for this, really it's about seeking to lead our generation into a transforming relationship with Jesus. Seeking to lead our generation into a transformed relationship with Jesus. That's the whole deal. Why? So that our whole city, so that our whole region would flourish in every way imaginable, that they would experience shalom, the peace of God. So that's the, the tri-city and so that the tri-cities and beyond can experience the blessing of God, as God said so long ago to Abraham, through you all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Let me say a word about our generation. Our generation is a, actually a biblical phrase that's often used to speak about all the people at any given time on the earth. Now, there's a wonderful statement. Some of you know this in the book of Acts where it says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. It's a pretty way of saying he died. (laughs) Um, I like sleeping. That sounds good, doesn't it, for the Christian, the God person. But that means that all the people who were alive when David was alive, young and old, David served God's purpose in his generation. 
And Jesus calls us to do that, to serve our purpose in our generation. And that means we want to reach everybody, young and old, who are in our sphere. Because everybody needs Jesus. And more significantly, Jesus wants everybody. Everybody you know needs Jesus, and Jesus wants them. And i got to say, this passage, one of the ways it's been speaking to me is that no one is a lost cause to Jesus. If he could speak those words there in that place, Caesarea Philippi, he can speak it over any lost person you know that you think God might have written off. He can speak that kind of hope to them. He actually builds his church on lost causes. Some of you are them, just so you know. You were, pardon me, you were them and are that no more. Sorry, I've got to make sure I get that right or you're going to all walk out there with lower self-esteem. Um, now, some of you are old. Let me say there is a generation of people who need God that may be facing questions that people face at the end of their lives. Jesus wants to reach that generation. And some of you are young. There's a, a generation of people that need Jesus so very much, but they may have been turned off by the church. Jesus wants that generation. Some of you are not sure whether you're young or you're old. That means you're old. <laughs> but where we want to go is, is to bring the healing and hope of Jesus to our generation to direct people in, in our city towards a transforming relationship with Jesus because we believe that's everything. As we think about why and what we are as a church, this is fundamental. Jesus said, I will build my church. Whose church are we? This is Jesus' church. We are Jesus' church. Jesus thought up the church. Jesus started the church. Jesus picked the church. Jesus taught the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus was resurrected for the church. Jesus sent his spirit to guide the church. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father praying for the church. If anyone could use a little good news today, one day Jesus is coming back for his church. It's his church. Let me make this just a little bit more personal this morning. Jesus sees how our community and our city suffers from what comes out of the gates of hell. He sees all the pain. He sees all the panic. He sees all the suffering that comes from that. But he also knows that we suffer. We're part of the culture. We're, we experience it too. We suffer from what comes out of the gates of hell. He knows it's not just something that's happening out there in the world. There's actually no us and them when it comes to our broken human condition. And Jesus stands over the, the sinful and the wayward and the idolatrous, broken parts of our lives, and he does not ever say it's too big a mess. It's a lost cause. There is no hope. He says even there, the gates of hell will not prevail. 
I bring my hope. I bring my freedom. And I fight for you. And I did it in a way, I fought for you in a way that feels like foolishness to the world. It looks like that. I actually won by losing. And I died so I might bring you life. Through Jesus, even though we might find at times that we feel hopeless about the mess of our lives, about where we are just, we know we're twisted inside, where we're greedy or grumpy or selfish or addicted or anxious. In Jesus, there is great hope for us. There's great hope for our world. Jesus has great compassion for our Caesarea Philippi. We follow one who says, on this rock, on this rock, on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he just invites everybody who will. You want to come? Do you want to come? Jesus is up to something indescribably wonderful in our world, and we're going to want to get in on it, friends. There is great hope. The future is actually so very bright because we follow one who is building his church on the gates of hell. Why don't we pray? Bow your heads with me. Let's pray together. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for what you are doing, what Jesus is doing in this world. Thank you that through him, it's really possible for every one of us to live with deep contentment, confidence, and joy in our everyday lives. We hunger for that, God. And we do pray for this world, our world that needs you so much, for people we all know and love who are far from you, our friends, our co-workers, our parents, our spouses, our sons and daughters. God, help us, we pray, to understand our Caesarea Philippi, to notice the kind of gods that run the day here. What are the spiritual dynamics around us that affect people in this greater Vancouver area, but also affect us? Lord, how do you want to work in us in fresh, creative ways, uh, both in us and in our city? Father, we pray for our church. I pray now, God, for everybody in this room, everybody who's suffering in one way or another from what comes out of the gates of hell. Would you help us, God? We're, we need you, Lord. Would you stand? I, I see you, Jesus, standing over us, wanting to speak your hope over our lives. Would you help us to hear that? Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus. Master teacher, would you speak over us your freedom and, and with your confidence that you will indeed your, build your life in us? If you do that by your grace and in your power, we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As a response this morning, we're going to participate in communion, the Lord's Supper. I love that we do this. Uh, we're doing it every week during this, these weeks leading up to Easter. Jesus, we worship Jesus who said, I give my life as a ransom 
for many. I gave my life as a ransom for you. I purchased your freedom. You now belong to me. That's what Jesus says. He did this so that old people and young people, so that our generation might find the good news to be good news for them. Uh, Jesus told us in uh, his last supper that he did with his disciples the night before he he died, he said, "Um, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember this and keep on remembering it, that I died for you, that I gave my life for you, that you can find life in me. And so we do this again uh, with simple emblems that Jesus gave, just stuff that would have been part of every meal in the first century, bread and wine. We have bread or rice crackers, actually, and juice, preferably Welch's, but that's what we do here. But these ordinary emblems, like they, really, they seem like nothing to us, and some, a, a little snack, they uh, carry weight to them because they point us to, to, to Jesus' great love for us that got expressed in a broken body, in a body that bled for us, and that was given for us. And... Um, Again, he won by losing, and through his loss, we win it all. And so uh, we celebrate again his life in this, this time. I'm going to invite you, uh, just our servers, would you come on forward and, and be ready to serve? Um, how, how we do communion here, it's, it, we're pretty open that if you love Jesus and you want to love him more, that this is for you. If you really can't say you love Jesus or want to have anything to do with Jesus, probably you should sit this out. But if you love Jesus, <laughs> even part of you, this is a really good practice. Uh, we invite you to come down these two middle aisles and uh, receive the emblems from our servers, and they will speak a brief word of blessing over you, and then return to the side aisles, and you can eat and drink uh, at your leisure at your seats as we kind of sing and worship together. But these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Enjoy.